This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast. This is episode 56, continuing our discussion episode 55 of What is Linguistic Meaning, where we read Ludwig Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations, Part 1, Sections 1 through 133 and 192 through 360, completed around 1946. Go get the text and other info at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. And this is Philosophy Bro, author of philosophybro.com, from the bro wherever that is. <laughs> Maybe before we get back into it, let's do our ground rules we did not do last time so the relatively new people can know what we are trying to do here. Do you want to take a stab at one, Mr. Bro? Oh, did we just make them up as we go? I'm saying, <laughs> have you listened to the show enough that you can name one of the damn rules? No, I haven't. And I'm not going to be able to bluff my way into that one. Number one, try not to assume that our audience has read what we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy. Number two, do not name drop, just make your point. Don't say, you would understand me if only you'd read Philosophy Bro's existentialist tract, Broin' in the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, we will be rigorous and exact in all that we say, unless doing otherwise would be more entertaining. For instance, in the last episode, when we meant ostention, sometimes we said ostentation because that would be awesome because it's like the difference between pointing at something and saying chair and like flinging your hips around and saying chair with sparkles that would be ostentation who said that no ostentation i noticed dylan saying it once i, I said ostentation yes awesome thank god it wasn't me <laughs> maybe it happened other times i don't know sounds like something i would say last time we covered a lot of the overall themes so maybe this time i had suggested that we just pick out passages that we know we especially wanted to talk about and then read them and then talk about them. And then that way we'll maybe get through more than five pages. Does that sound reasonable? I think so, yeah. Sure. Well, the first one I had on my little list was number 22. 22, I think, might be the only spot where he name drops Gottlob Frege, who we had an episode on a while ago. And it says, Frege's idea that every assertion contains an assumption, which is the thing that is asserted, really rests on the possibility found in our language of writing every statement in the form, it is asserted that such and such is the case. But that such and such is the case is not a sentence in our language. So far, it is not a move in the language game. And if I write not, it is asserted that, but it is asserted, colon, such and such is the case, the words it is asserted simply become superfluous. We might write every statement in the form of a question followed by a yes. Is it raining? Yes. Would this show that every statement contained a question? Etc. So this is referring not only to Frege, but also to Wittgenstein's earlier idea that language is fundamentally about making assertions. And that if you have something else, well, maybe you could come up with like an assertion. You know, if you say, I doubt that you speak English, you have to analyze that in terms of what would be the primary. Okay, there's a there's a proposition in there. You speaking English. But he says, well, that's actually here. He says that is not itself an assertion. As soon as you look at anything the least bit difficult, he thinks that this idea that everything can be reduced to assertion falls apart. 
Just for background, Frege, as part of his logical calculus that he developed, right, which led to our mathematical logic, he had a sign, a symbol for assertion. I don't remember what it looked like exactly. I think it preceded the sentence, right? To say, this is being asserted. Right. And so you could have different modalities of the same proposition. Yeah. Is it being asserted? Is it being questioned? Is it being doubted? Whatever. Frege and those folks want to say that, that the assertion is the basic one. But Wittgenstein says, well, you know, why would you necessarily assume that? And 23 says, you know, but how many kinds of sentences are there? Say assertion, question, command. There are countless kinds, countless different kinds of use of what we call symbols, words, sentences. And this multiplicity is not something fixed given once and for all, but new types of language, new language games, as we may say, come into existence and others become obsolete and get forgotten. This is kind of the, I found the coolest part of the book, just that this giant list that he gives of different You know, if you think asserting is the basic one, he says, review the multiplicity of language games in the following examples and in others, giving orders and obeying them, describing the appearance of an object or giving its measurement, constructing an object from a description, a drawing, reporting an event, speculating about an event, forming and testing a hypothesis, presenting the results of an experiment in tables and diagrams, making up a story and reading it, play acting, singing catches, guessing riddles, making a joke, telling it, solving a problem in practical arithmetic, translating from one language to another, asking, thanking, cursing, greeting, praying, etc. And it ends, it is interesting to compare the multiplicity of the tools in language and of the ways in which they are used, the multiplicities of kinds of words and sentences with what logicians have said about the structure of language, including the author of the Tractatus Logical <laughs> Philosophicus. That guy was a dick. Namely, moi. <laughs> so that was thought-provoking to me. That, yeah, okay, unless you were of the mind, like you were expressing last time, Dylan, that like, well, why would you think assertion is basic? Why would you think you can reduce everything to you know, logical symbology because it was that simple? I think it's worth articulating why you might not think it at least, or what is the contrast that he's unearthing here? The note that I had about this section was that he was saying that assertions involve expectations. So assertions are not expectations, but language involves expectations. That's one of the ways I understood him to be claiming that what language is doing in a sentence is not an assertion. Saying that it's an assertion is not enough. Mm -hmm. That's a short version of his criticism, is that you do have assertions, but assertions don't characterize language completely and sufficiently. And this goes right to his notion that he wants to keep calling it a game in that the rules are different and, in fact, innumerable for the different kinds of games. And this is what I meant why I was thinking about it in terms of expectations, because a lot of a game involves what you expect to be happening either next or the implication of what has happened now for what you should expect in the future. That is, you're following rules. So, you know, your expectations imply rules and rules allow you to structure expectations. So I guess that's why, to me, the distinction he was making was that language is about expectations and not about assertions. That might be part of his point. I don't know if that's his point here, though. I think that like that's all right. And he's certainly saying that assertion is not at the bottom of how language works. Nor can you say that here are the four things at the bottom of every language. Assertion, doubt, question, commands. And that's everything. I mean, Frege's work in the philosophy of language is really sort of ancillary to his logical work. He's trying to find ways to connect his logic work to language so that he can do his project more easily. And Wittgenstein is saying, like, you can't cross that gap. You can't just come up with a sign and say, like, oh, here's an assertion. Beautiful. And then that's all that indicates. And there you are. Like, there's no reason to think that at the bottom of even that particular kind of sentence is one form of assertion. 
say more about that. I mean, or explain it more, right? It's, I mean, right now, what you're saying is a kind of ostension. You're invoking Wittgenstein pointing, and maybe that's all he's doing in section 23, is he's just pointing at, look at all these examples of language games that aren't characterizable by assertions. And if he fully spelled it out, he would give the same exact sentence and say that I could have them manifest each one of those ways of having a language game with exactly the same sentence. And maybe that's all that he's going to do is, as an act of ostension, point to the fact that language acts as a language game. It seems to be unpackable more than that, that you can point to the failure of assertion as being the end all of language without just pointing at it. Right. He's not just pointing and saying, look at all these other things. He's making the point, and these other things also will fail to characterize a language. I'm not saying like, no, Frege had it wrong having four things. Really, there are 20 things. You can't just say these are the number of things there are because new things are constantly emerging. So I just don't think he's talking about rules here, rules and expectation. He's just saying new things are constantly emerging. What is it about language that's doing that? Probably that there are multiple players doing this thing. Well, there are multiple human activities and intentions and human beings want to accomplish, right? Well, but multiple isn't the same thing as innumerable, right? He's saying that is not numerable, right? right? So for this to really work for him, and I'm on board with it, but I'm just trying to see where it is that you're going to say it's innumerable. What's the argument for that? It has to be that, I mean, even you can see from some of these examples, I don't know if we're actually going to find an argument in here because that's not the way he works. But from some of these examples that, you know, a number of them seem to be different kinds of assertions, right? It's not like assertions and questions and commands are fundamentally different. I guess what I'm trying to get at is trying to figure out what it is to do an examination of language. Like we think that traditionally, maybe you have the syntax, so you can talk about what is grammatical and did you use the plural verb with the plural noun and did you have a noun in the sentence? at all, that kind of stuff, just will a sentence make sense. And then you have the semantics, which to me has always meant, what do the words mean? And the easiest way to think about that is just, you know, what do they refer to just in this sort of ostensive way? And you understand, well, okay, maybe the word and isn't ostensive. You just figure that out by context when you have enough other things, enough nouns that are ostensive, enough verbs that you can, you know, see someone running and say run, etc. And so you build up something and then that's it for a theory of language. You've got the syntax, you've got the semantics. And a part of that complete semantics then would be to, if you're getting to the sentence level, to distinguish between commands and questions and statements, but it wouldn't really go beyond that socially, right? You'd say, I'm done with my theory of language now. But I think what Wittgenstein is saying is that you just can't make this distinction between semantics and the social uses of words. Right. As long as there could be other things people could be doing socially, and we can make up a game right now that every time I say the forbidden word that is uh, philosophy bro's real name, everybody's going to go ah at me. Uh, so there, we just made up a new language game. So now the forbidden word sort of doesn't just refer to him anymore. Right. It refers, it is meant to elicit this response and have me correct myself and say, oh, I'll edit that out, whatever. So it's the lack of a lookup table. When we say multiplicity, we're meaning multiplicity of meaning. There isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence. A joke is a perfect example here. The fact that you can have irony, things like that. Right. So I think what drives the multiplicity and the innumerability is the innumerability of ways there are to live, right? 
where he thinks like language mm -hmm. games are forms of life. The reason we can't just strictly enumerate the number of ways to use languages because we can't strictly enumerate the ways people can be or do and languages as far out as that. So he's saying something like for Frege's project to work, it needs to be the case that like, oh, people only do five things. They assert, they doubt, they question, they command, they joke. And that's all. Everything people do can be reduced to those five things. And since we can't reduce it to those five or to 20, we can't reduce language to that either. And there isn't like a separate kind of language that does access those five things in general. That's just not how language works. And I think the implication here is that this throws a wrench in the idea that you're going to develop this ideal logical calculus that in any way does justice to the way language is really used. I mean, I think when Frege and Wittgenstein developed this calculus, I think they thought that everything important could be reduced to it, right? Even if language has complexity, ultimately all that complexity can be reduced to these very simple atomic statements, which are essentially descriptive. They're essentially trying to link mm -hmm. language to these facts or states of affairs in the world. The point here is that much of what goes on in language is not descriptive in that way. Also, I think it's important that the multiplicity has to do with the ways, right? So, for instance, in these cases of different language games that he gives lists of, in the individual terms, we would say, well, I sort of know what those individual terms mean. Mm -hmm. But when I use these different language games, I realize that, in fact, they mean different things than even what I might have thought they meant. And that's where this multiplicity is coming in. It's both the multiplicity of the ways I can use the um, language in terms of the rules, the individual games, like praying or reporting an event or constructing, but also the way that folds in on the meaning of the individual words. So it's not even as if individual words are atomic and then you have, following the calculus notion, that each of these games amount to just different sorts of rules or functions. Mm -hmm. He has to have it be the case that the atoms themselves are multiple in their meanings. There are no atoms. There are no atoms, yes. Because if there were atoms and you just had a multiplicity of functions, you would still have something just more complicated than Frege's description, right? right? It has to be that the meaning of the words gets affected by the games themselves. It would be like having the X and Y values in a function get affected by the function itself. Right. I think what makes this hard to understand then, the way you're describing it, which is apt, that is, maybe we don't mean by these words what we think we mean. Well, that seems ridiculous because isn't meaning something we're aware of? Some, I know what I mean. And so he spends half the book arguing against that notion of meaning. Yeah, very counterintuitive. Yeah, that seems right. So just to clarify, when I say there are no atoms, I don't mean like it's impossible for a word to be atomic. He thinks there are very clear contexts in which words serve in that sort of atomic role, where like that dog lives there, and that's pretty simple. But I can say that same sentence and actually be saying my best friend constantly pisses off his girlfriend. And I'm like, oh yeah, that dog lives there. Same atoms, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes. For the listener at home, I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> same atoms, but completely different meaning. So there are atoms, except when there aren't. And it turns out there are usually not. Yeah, he argues at certain places in this against the old idea that you could just decompose every complex description into atoms, right? To atomic right. sentences. Because for the early Wittgenstein, the idea was that 
Well, there's some dispute, but at least for Russell, it's pretty clear that a statement like the dog is there could be further decomposed until you get to these logically simple atomic statements, which I don't even know what they would be, right? But you would be reducing everything as much as possible into its parts and then making statements about those parts. Right. For Russell, they were phenomenal. You know, there's a red patch in this corner of my field of vision. And for Wittgenstein, we could not figure out what the hell he meant. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, you're creating a computer program and you're building the dog pixel by pixel. Mm -hmm. And the atomic statements describe the location and color of every pixel, let's say. And then any statement about the dog is a compound statement, descriptive statement, which is logically related and can be broken down into all the atomic sentences. Right. So if you knew all the atomic facts, all the state of all the atomic sentences, then you could de derive every other truth that could be. Right. Yeah, and that turns on the fact that you have to have both the atomic sentences and that there is only one set of ways of relating them or a numerable, explicit, determined set of ways of relating them. Right. They're either true or false, the atomic ones. And you need to be able to verify things, right? Yeah, but saying that they're either true or false has to do with the relations, because it's more than just the atoms themselves. It also has to do with the way they're related to one another. And this game business has to do with there being a multiplicity of relations, and that reflects back on the putative atoms themselves. I think that the notion of game is more his way of pointing out that in any particular language, a language game is an interaction among persons according to rules that they all sort of agree on. And the fact that we have lots of language games going on at any given time is just the indicator that we are at any given time interacting according to lots of different sets of rules that with different people we will agree on in different ways. But the notion of a game is, I think, just his way of isolating. This is just some very small set of rules that you're interacting according to in this interaction that you all agree on. We're making moves, right. and those moves can be right or wrong according to the way the game is played, according to the practice of the community. Right. But you don't have to even be playing the same game, right? I mean, isn't that comes along with this? As what? Someone to whom you're talking? You do for it to make sense to someone. You do have to be able to... No. They at least have to be able to figure out your game. Otherwise, what you're doing is not meaningful to them. It's nonsense to them. So it could be nonsense. That's one possibility, right? A good example would be where I simply don't understand the other person's language, right? I'm just listening to them speak. I don't have the benefit of any other kind of information. And it's just nonsense. But of course, there are plenty of other cases where I understand, or I think I understand what they're saying, but I am operating and understanding it under a different set of rules, a different language game. And so therefore, from the standpoint of the other person, I'm confused, but I understand exactly what they're saying in terms of my language game. And so you end up getting in a discussion about, you know, sorting out exactly what you mean by something. I think the problem here is that we don't issue the, the rules. We don't make the practice. That's a community level authority, right? So it's not like each of us has our own set of rules. That's issued by the community. And it's that practice that we are born into without any choice, really. I mean, it sort of reminds me of uh, the Susser podcast. So you didn't like the example I just gave? I just invented a game of we can't say philosophy bros real names and that counts as... I thought you could have it either way. You can explicitly issue rules and as long as we all agree to play with that, that's fine. But let's say, so you explicitly issue this... Wait, wait, I don't understand this whole business of, of agreeing. It's not like everybody sits down and has a constitution regarding their languages. No, but when we learn language, we are right. learning to participate according to the more or less standard rules. Good God, more or less standard. The customs. We are learning... 
to Jesus participate in a language form. Yeah, in a practice. And how, right, so this is why meaning is used. So, like, when you were in middle school and you discovered sarcasm, that was like a miraculous thing. When a kid first discovers sarcasm, it's such a big moment in his life, and then he alienates all of his friends by being constantly sarcastic, and maybe I'm getting too autobiographical here, not important. <laughs> the, the point is that, like, learning to do sarcasm is learning a new language game. And no one, like, sits down and says, okay, here are the rules of sarcasm. What happens is a parent says something like, yeah, you can stay up as late as you want. And you're like, awesome. And they're like, no, I was being sarcastic. And then you get better at sarcasm as you lose friends and start to realize you have to temper yourself. And that's how people get better at particular language games. You can sit down and issue explicit rules like, every time you guys say my name, we make a funny sound. But that's not typically how language learning proceeds. But also, even when you do that, it's still established at the community level. The idea is that we can't each issue our, you know, this sort of gets us at the private language argument. We can't just each individually have our own set of rules and imagine we're interpreting things according to our own idiosyncratic set of rules. The game and meaning occur between at least two people. I like thinking about this whole, what if two people are using different language games? Yeah, it's a good thought experiment, yeah. I was using sarcasm and you didn't realize I was, but what if, you know, it seems like you could have double meanings. So let's say I just come up to you and engage you in conversation and you think we're playing the engaging in light conversation language game. But what I'm really doing is feeling you out to see if you're going to be a good mark for my robbing you later, for my con. So in a sense, it seems like the conning language game is something I'm trying to do with language. I didn't make up what conning is. I didn't make up the fact that there is property and there is robbery, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But I'm still doing something that you're not in on, even though I'm communing with you and you think I'm making sense. That's just deception, though. I mean, the con otter still understands what the meaning ostensibly is, right? They know what the mark mm -hmm. is going to believe that they're saying. And... Ostensibly, normally a great word, maybe... Maybe go with supposedly in this context. Ostentatiously. Ostentatious. Right. No, I said ostensibly because it was just too irresistible in the context of, yeah, ostensive. So anyway, but yeah. Right. So that's really good. You were actually making a pun. I thought you were just playing the normal saying thing language <laughs> game. And I was like, whoa, you got to be careful. And, there was I, was, and I really was just making the pun for myself. I didn't right. um, expect it to. Actually... I thought you said ostensibly. You did. And that was I a did say different word than ostensively. Right, it's no, a different I word. I was just saying, like, we're all going to get confused. <laughs> Let's look at an example like Andy Kaufman and his humor. Andy Kaufman would go to a club and he'd put a plant in there and he would engage in a comedy routine that then would involve a member of the audience who he knew, but then ended up being a kind of joke on the other audience. So he would play this kind of, it doesn't rise quite to the level of a, a genuinely private language because it involves himself and some other people, but it involves more than a ruse or a deception, like in a con, because it involves a manipulation. So he is self-consciously using a language game that he expects a reaction from his general audience in such a way. And it's sort of even playing with what their reaction is going to be without them understanding the game he's playing. So that's fine. What he's doing is he is manipulating the rules that they're playing by, but he needs to know what he needs to understand those rules in order to fuck with them. And it's not yeah. private because you can describe what he's doing. Yeah. I'm not making a strong argument for private right. language right here, but I guess what I would say is that the part that makes me think that there's a flavor or a, a rings of relative intimacy of language 
maybe not genuinely private, has to do with both that example that I gave with Kaufman, but also the whole notion that we can figure something out so that we can figure out a language game that we have never played before by either example or watching it, as long as it's close enough, as long as it has some fingers or some resonances with it, but we can figure it out. And so that tells us something about the way we process language games or the way language works for us and gets to the root of sort of why this would be true, Wittgenstein's claims would be true, is that the example that we can just figure them out, that we can figure anything out at the end of the day. Right. If Wittgenstein were wrong about private language or personal rules, you would have to say something about Andy Kaufman. Like, right, so Andy Kaufman, he's fucking with the audience and he gets this internal feeling that he calls Bralia and no one really knew what Bralia was. It was an emotion that only he could have. No one can refer to it. In fact, the only reason I know that he felt that is he said once, I feel the feeling Bralia. But no one has any idea what Bralia is. If that doesn't make sense, what he was really feeling is like amusement and maybe smug self-satisfaction is Bralia. And he doesn't really have that private feeling because we can talk about what he was doing. Even an individual who takes himself to be doing language in a new way or a different way has to be doing it in a way that it can be figured out. And I think that's right. Yeah, if the private language is the meanings can't possibly be known by anyone but the speaker, right? So it's not just that it happens to be private. It's right. if you created a private language for your diary and you were speaking about everyday sorts of things, in principle, we can translate that. So it's not really a private language in the strong sense that Wittgenstein means. He means that it's untranslatable. And the reason why Wittgenstein even brings that up is that he seems to be arguing against a Cartesian notion of mental states that are completely inaccessible to others. So Mark has pains and these specific states, I can't possibly know them. Not just that I don't happen to know them, but I, in principle, I can't possibly know those mental states. So should we read some text of the private language argument since we're talking about it? 199 is the first place I have a, a note that is something like where he starts to build towards the private language argument. This is probably before we explicitly mentions it. Sure. It is relevant here because it's about obeying a rule. Right. And maybe I should read a connecting thing that's actually in the section that we are reading to see how tightly this whole thing fits together. I was looking at 31, Mm -hmm. and he's talking about chess. And this is the third paragraph of 31. I'm explaining chess to someone, and I begin by pointing to a chessman and saying, this is the king. It can move like this and so on. In this case, we shall say the words, this is the king, or this is called the king, are a definition only if the learner already knows what a piece in a game is. That is, if he has already played other games or has watched other people playing and understood and similar things. Further, only under these conditions will he be able to ask relevantly in the course of learning the game, what do you call this? That is, this piece in a game. We may say, only someone who already knows how to do something with it can significantly ask for a name. So that sort of starts off, and then a whole lot of what comes after that is, well, what is this rule following? I mean, he's already said it's not a matter of explicitly having a formula in your head that you consult, because just in our talking about how we figure out a new language game based on knowing other language games, it can't be something as instructive as that. And one of the things we were saying last time is that if you think that this rule following is a matter of sort of having an explicit rule in your head that you look at, well, then you would need instructions on how to interpret that rule, which would lead to an infinite regress, right? You can't have a rule about how to use a rule, about how to use a rule, etc. So then looking at ahead to, uh, what did you say? One, uh, 199. 199. Yeah. yeah. Is what we call obeying a rule, something that it would be possible for only one man to do, and to do only once in his life. This is, of course, a note on the grammar of the expression to obey a rule. 
And he says, so it's not. <laughs> it's not possible that there should have been only one occasion in which someone obeyed a rule. It is not possible there should have been only one occasion on which a report was made or an order given or understood, etc. To obey a rule, to make a report, to give an order, to play a game of chess are customs. That's sort of a preliminary to the body of the argument, right? Right. But you can see how it flows very naturally from what was going on earlier. Yeah. 204. As things are, I can, for example, invent a game that is never played by anyone. But would the following be possible too? Mankind has never played any games. Once, however, someone invented a game which no one ever played. He's still on about the rules. Yeah. I mean, it's all related, of course. That was 204. He gives a response to that. But that's just the queer thing about intention. This is in quotes, so it's his opponent. It is just the queer thing about intention, about the mental process, that the existence of a custom, of a technique, is not necessary to it. That, for example, it is imaginable that two people should play chess in a world in which otherwise no games existed, and that even that they should begin a game of chess and then be interrupted. And he answers, but isn't chess defined by its rules, and how are these rules present in the mind of the person who's intending to play chess? And then he goes more and more on, this is related to that, the comments about meaning. Like, well, if you think meaning is something in the head... That's not going to capture it. Just like obeying a rule is not something in the head because it's just not an explicit thing you could express in one sentence that you're reading off of some inner space in yourself. It is a complex and kind of flexible thing that enables you to act in a human way. I have this great image of someone like who's never, ever played games or, or known they exist. And you sit down with a chessboard and you're like, so here are the pieces. And they're like, the what? And you're like, the things that we move. And then I'm going to move one and then you move one. Like, so in what order do you move them? Oh, I don't know. However, it's going to get to take my king. But why? Why would you want to think what he's getting at is you would have to explain before you could invent a game where there were no games before. You'd have to invent like playing and then playing a game. And then you'd have to suddenly build this entire notion just to give chess any sense whatsoever. 243. Uh, that's exactly what I was where looking. You, yeah. Go ahead and read it. A human being can encourage himself, give himself orders, obey, blame, and punish himself. He can ask himself a question and answer it. We could even imagine human beings who spoke only in monologue, who accompanied their activities by talking to themselves. An explorer who watched them and listened to their talk might succeed in translating their language into ours. This would enable him to predict the people's actions correctly, for he also hears them making resolutions and decisions. But could we also imagine a language in which a person could write down or give vocal expressions to his inner experiences, his feelings, moods, and the rest for his private use? Well, can't we do so in our ordinary language? But that is not what I mean. The individual words of this language are to refer to what can only be known to the person speaking, to his immediate private sensations, so another person cannot understand the language. And then he goes on with the private language right. argument. Well, yeah. I, yeah, we might as well read the next one. 244. How do words refer to sensations? There doesn't seem to be any problem here. Don't we talk about sensations every day and give them names? But how is the connection between name and a thing named set up? This question is the same as how does a human being learn the meaning of the names of sensations, of the word pain, for example? Here's one possibility. Words are connected with the primitive, the natural expressions of the sensation and used in their place. A child has hurt himself and he cries. Then adults talk to him and teach him exclamations and later sentences. They teach the child new pain behavior. Mm. All right. So he's already giving his what sounds very behaviorist yeah. alternative to 
the idea that, again, language based on ostention. So then language about interstates would have to be based on ostention is that I examine pain in myself and I say, oh, there's pain. Then there's a problem there. How do I know that what I mean by pain when I refer to myself is the same as what you mean by pain when you refer to yourself? And don't we all have unique psyches? And couldn't we come up with these words that refer to these strange feelings that only we have or we just can't know whether anyone has them? Uh, it doesn't that make sense? And he just thinks that that's just based on, again, a whole ridiculous conception of what linguistic meaning amounts to. Linguistic meaning is not a matter of having an image in your head when you say a word. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.